On a cold day in 1920, Captain Nicholas von Schwab arrives at an asylum in Berlin. Nurses swish down the hall in white dresses, leading him into a back room. It's clean, cold in more ways than one. The nurses whisper amongst themselves, this captain was the personal guard of the Dowager Empress of Russia, mother of the murdered Tsar Nicholas Romanov. And he's here? The asylum is far from any place nobility or royalty or even the upper middle class would ever visit. And yet, here they are, escorting the captain to the room of this strange girl, the one who never says a word. The why is above their pay grade. So on they go into the asylum's parlor. On the couch sits an emaciated, dark-haired young woman in her late teens. The captain and his aides take turns walking around her, staring. Can it be? The hair seems right. The age, too. Height? Close enough. Facial features? Maybe. But who can tell on a girl who's been through this much trauma? The captain tries to engage, offering some tea as one of the aides shuffle forward with a tray. No response. He tries again, speaking of his employer, the Empress, and the rest of the royal family back in St. Petersburg, well, now called Petrograd, but they can still call it by its original name. Silence, once again, but also something different, subtle, caught only by the trained captain. It's a nod. The young woman's eyes twinkle at the mention of her parents, the Tsar and the Tsarina. The captain continues... A small boy named Alexei? And, of course, his sisters? Tears well in the girl's eyes, but they do not fall. Not until the captain pulls something from his pocket. Photographs. He shuffles through them, showing her each one. The young woman. She's visibly upset now. He encourages her to talk. But she can't. He takes a final sip, finishes his tea, and shrugs. Very well. He stands signaling his entourage. It's time to leave. But before he disappears, something happens. Something no staffer has ever witnessed since the girl arrived at the asylum. She stands and speaks a full sentence. You have a photo of my grandmother. And with this, Franziska Shonskowska begins one of the biggest cons of the 20th century— a con that will capture the hearts and destroy the hopes of millions around the world. She will convince the world that not only did Anastasia Romanov survive the massacre, said to have killed her and her family in 1918, but that she was, in fact, the Tsarina. But how? How does she manage to convince everyone that she is a princess? How does she maintain the lie despite all of the inconsistencies in her story? And then also, what happened to the real Grand Duchess Anastasia? We'll get to that. But for now, all you need to know is that Franziska Schwanskowska is ready to replace her hospital gown with a royal one. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. To understand how we got to this strange encounter at an asylum, we need to go back a few years and 2,300 miles away, specifically 
to a night in Ekaterinburg, Russia, on July 16, 1918. Most of the year, it's cold in this mining city nestled into the base of the Ural Mountain Range. But on this summer night, it's balmy and unnaturally quiet. No sounds, except the occasional wolf howling in the forest outside this isolated house. It's a two-story build, made mostly of stone, and it belongs to a wealthy merchant. Well, the merchant owns it, but he's long gone, forced to leave by a sinister new power taking hold of Russia. Inside, there's an emperor, his four daughters, and his one son. It's not where they should be. They should be at the Imperial Palace, just outside of St. Petersburg, built by the emperor's third great-grandmother, the Catherine the Great. They should be enjoying all the luxuries of court, listening to live music played on huge marble floors, and entertaining heads of state from other countries. Instead, the royals are here, in this much smaller home, with little knowledge of what's going on right outside its doors, never mind the rest of the world. The family huddles together. They're not allowed to receive any visitors, can't attend any church services. They eat only simple, tasteless food that appears twice a day at most. Even sunlight is not allowed because the windows are closed and boarded. Conditions are harsh for all of them, including the young boy, Alexei. He's the only son of the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia and he suffers from hemophilia, a rare genetic disorder that means his blood does not clot. His family worries that even the simplest cut could be the death of him, especially here, because no medical personnel besides their personal doctor are allowed in or out. Psychologically speaking, however, being locked away like this is probably the worst for the youngest girl, Grand Duchess Anastasia. She's different from her older royal sisters. She's bright and energetic. Even at 17, she's inquisitive, mischievous. She's more like Hermione Granger on the cusp of adulthood, as opposed to, say, Snow White. And while the family lives in seclusion, the First World War rages on. Until a few months ago, Russia was in the middle of it, too. And even though she left the conflict, the country is in extreme dire straits. After four years of fighting, the Russian economy is in shambles. Its people are starving, freezing, and miserable. About four million citizens are dead, maybe more. But this is only the beginning of Russia's woes. Already, revolutionaries are shutting her off from the rest of humanity, leaving only memories of a romantic past, memories of a complicated but glorious 500 years of empire, headed by diamond-studded and power-wielding czars and czarinas. For nearly 300 of these years, the Romanov family has ruled Russia. 18 members of that dynasty have claimed the throne, including Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Alexander I, and now Nicholas II. Well, technically not anymore. Nicholas abdicated his throne more than a year ago, but that's not good enough for the revolutionaries now taking power in Russia. They've exiled him, and now he's under house arrest more than a thousand miles from Moscow. The other world powers are very concerned. They know that the large majority of Russians blame their monarchy for their current state. A visionary named Vladimir Lenin is leading a revolt against the monarchy and the middle and upper classes. If the Bolshevik rebels want to take over Russia, they'll have to make the royal family go away. And while the Allies would like to do something for Nicholas, there are reasons they can't or won't. Simplistically, they need to stem the bloodshed and carve up territories and put an end to the conflict. Meanwhile, they're also trying to figure out how to stop the Spanish flu, 
which is burning through the same countries, killing millions more. So on this particular night, the Romanov royal family is awakened by their family physician, one of the few court employees who is allowed to see them. They're told to put on their clothes. They're moving to a safe location due to the impending chaos in Ekaterinburg. The Romanovs cooperate, and soon they're walking down into a basement room. They're lined up against the wall for a photograph. But then, suddenly, a dozen men enter the room and open fire. Bullets everywhere. And yet, somehow, none of the children die. Horrifically, they continue witnessing the surprise attack. It's partly because the shooters are drunk and poor shots, even in this enclosed space. But mostly, it's because all five children have jewels sewn inside their clothing for safekeeping. It's those jewels that deflect the bullets. But the soldiers are there for a job, and they must see it through. They advance with bayonets and more gunfire. The grisly massacre takes just 20 minutes. 20 sickening and terrifying minutes. And still, miraculously, the bullets that claimed her family have not claimed Princess Anastasia, although she's been hit several times. She wakes in the back of a cart, groggy, in pain. Teenage Anastasia remembers what went down, that her entire family had been assassinated. She must have passed out and been taken for dead. Two years later, a young woman arrives in Berlin. One night, in February of 1921, she finds herself standing on the Bendlerstrasse Bridge overlooking a river. She thinks about how everyone she loves is gone. The nightmare that began in the cellar has never stopped. No one is chasing her, not anymore. But the life she knew is over, and she no longer wants to live the one she's found. With all the trauma and sorrow, the future is just too bleak. Or is it? Because what this young woman does next makes Anna Delvey, the modern-day imposter so famously portrayed by the Netflix series, well, let's just say this woman could have taught her a thing or two. The young woman steps off the bridge, her raggedy dress fluttering in the wind before smacking the surface of the water and sinking into the icy depths. Numbness sets in as the weight of the water presses down, down. She's letting go. And then, there it is, a hand reaching out. And just like that, she's ripped from the freezing depths and into a blast of frigid air and back to life. People nearby saw her jump and decided to save her. Her, a lost stranger. They drag her ashore and run to find help. But this woman, near death, nearly frozen, has nothing to say. Either she can't or she won't. Not her name or where she came from, or really anything. She's like a shell of a human. So they take her to an asylum, and she lives there for two years, barely speaking a word. That is, until the day she passes the asylum's library. There's a magazine in the window, and unbelievably, it's her own face staring back at her. Or rather, a face she once knew to be her own. It's a face from a time of happiness and contentment, of safety, could it be that she was actually a lost royal princess when she went into that river and just doesn't remember? The magazine's headline asks, Does a czar's daughter live? She's pointing now with a shaky hand. The magazine. Her nurses snap to attention. Is this an episode? What's going on? But then they see. 
There's a light in their patient's eyes. She's ready to be that girl again, to be herself. Three words. It's all she says, but those three words will put her in the spotlight of the world for decades. I am Anastasia. The princess is alive. It's a miracle. That's what everyone thinks. Anastasia has remembered who she is. But if that's the case, the real miracle would be Anastasia waking up in the cart on July 17th, 1918. Which she did not. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. You can listen to Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, ad-free on Amazon Music. Here's an easy idea to spread a little more joy this holiday season. Aura Frames for everyone. Name the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and Strategist. Aura Frames are the perfect way to keep all your favorite faces in one beautiful place. This holiday, we're giving everyone on my side of the family an Aura Frame, and I could not be more excited for them to open them. Yeah, we're probably the biggest fans of Aura Frames. We have three of them around our house, and each one has a different set of photos and videos on display, so we know firsthand how meaningful these frames are. I get variety, free unlimited storage, and the photos look like real prints. I am such a fan, truly, of Aura Frames, and their elegant packaging just puts it over the top as the perfect gift. It's so easy to. Simply connect your Aura Frame to Wi-Fi and use the free Aura app to add endless pics and videos from anywhere in the world. Which means we can send photos of the grandkids straight to my parents' frame. And they can comment, heart, and send photos to our frames, too. Preload it with photos and even a personalized video message. This holiday season, listeners can save on the perfect gift and get up to $30 off Aura's best-selling frames. Just go to AuraFrames.com scoundrel. That's A-U-R-A frames.com scoundrel. These frames have been selling out every December, so get yours now before they're all gone. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. And yes, we know everybody has a recommendation for a show these days. So here's why Jordan's show is worth a listen. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is geared toward making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can make your own conclusions about the world. My favorite thing about The Jordan Harbinger Show is that his conversations with guests are so natural. The way he pulls interesting tidbits and practical advice from anyone gives it purpose and intrigue. He's really mastered the interview format. And he talks with everyone, from neuroscientists to counterfeiters to astronauts, authors, thinkers, and performers. Maybe one week it's an FBI hostage negotiator sharing techniques on getting people to like you. Then on the next, it's an art forger who was once on the run from both the feds and the mafia. I also recommend Jordan's conversation with Dallas Taylor about the psychology of sound design. And also the one where he talks to Mike Rowe. Do you know he started his show business career in opera? Did he really? Definitely check it out. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's a lot to like. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This young woman in the asylum is actually one Franziska Szanskowska. She's a factory worker from Poland, not a surviving princess. 
And yet, even many of the real Anastasia's friends, even some of her relatives, believe her claim to be Anastasia. They believe this claim even after Francisca, the imposter, dies in 1984. Francisca has every motivation to impersonate Anastasia. But we return to our original question. How? How does she manage to convince so many people she was the ill-fated princess? How does she manage to keep the lie going when there are so many inconsistencies to her story? And what actually happened to the real Grand Duchess, Anastasia? For answers, we go back to the beginning of Francisca's life. She was born in December of 1896, a few years earlier than Anastasia. So they were about the same age. And they had the same color eyes, too. Oddly enough, Francisca even had the same shaped big toe as the Duchess. But that's where the physical similarities end, which makes us wonder, why wasn't this an issue when Francisca took over the life of Anastasia? We'll have to wait and see, because right now, Francisca is one of five children born to farmers in a village in northern Poland. The Szanskowskas had once been minor nobility, but the problem is, a lot of Polish residents can claim such status. Why? Well, a few generations ago, a prince gave out titles as a way to lure men into military service. Most of these so-called noble families never wind up with any land or money. And this is true of Francisca's family as well. Still, the idea of being a noble, it's something Francisca files away. It might not mean much right now, but later, you never know. In the meantime, she dives into her village schooling, preferring to hide in a wagon and read while the other kids stack the hay. Even at a young age, others notice that she seems to be happiest alone, isolated from the world, creating a new one inside her head. Francisca's favorite books center on long-dead British royalty, like Anne Boleyn and the first Queen Elizabeth. She daydreams about going to England, the home of Queen Victoria, and imagines herself in the story of Camelot. Green lawns, tennis, ladies in white hats, and what it would be like to float down the wide steps of a grand house and greet people for tea. These are her fantasies. But this is all it is. Daydreaming. Francisca has no way of ever getting to England. But she does find a way to get to Berlin. Francisca's parents die when she's about 18, which is also the time World War I breaks out. She and one of her sisters take a train to the German capital, taking jobs as maids. Francisca works throughout the week, but spends her weekends at the movies, thinking that maybe she could become an actress. Her life is far from glamorous, but it's comfortable, even during this horrible conflict between Germany and a lot of the rest of Europe. She has her own room at her employer's house, and she's able to borrow books from the beautiful local library. She's even engaged. But life takes twists and turns, and Francisca's takes a turn for the worse. Her fiancé dies on the Western Front. The reasons aren't clear, but she and her sister have a falling out that's so bad they stop speaking to one another. Then, her health begins to falter, likely due to anemia. And all this makes what's about to happen even worse. On account of the war, people are giving up their creature comforts, including their maids, including Francisca. She finds work in a munitions factory, much like millions of other young women. Her department makes grenades, and Francisca's job is to polish them as they come off the assembly line. One day, she faints while holding one of these grenades, a live grenade. It rolls to the line foreman, 
and explodes, killing him instantly. Can you imagine the fear, the questions? Why is this happening to her? Really, Francisca's not even supposed to be here. The nobility of her name suggests that she belongs in a palace somewhere, not a factory. But she is here, and the shrapnel hits anyone in the way. She's badly wounded, but unlike the foreman, she survives, although just barely. The event takes an emotional toll. Francisca has a nervous breakdown so intense that concerned co-workers have her committed to a hospital. She recovers, then moves on to a job picking asparagus. But at her new job, she's brutally attacked by a male co-worker. It's a different kind of danger, but no less traumatic, no less scarring. Francisca is alone, hurt, and unable to find safety and solace in this brutal and dangerous world. Just like Anastasia Romanov. It's this sense of despair that leads her to the bridge in February of 1921. From that day until two years later, she is known simply as Miss Unknown because she refuses to divulge her own name. Until, of course, she announces to the nurses in the asylum and the rest of the world a shocking revelation that she is, in fact, the long-lost Grand Duchess Anastasia. Now, it's worth noting that what Francisca is doing, claiming to be the lost royal, is not the first time someone has made this claim. In fact, there have been many others. The truth was that exile for the Romanovs meant moving from one secret hiding place to another. Their final home in Ekaterinburg was double-fenced and guarded. They lived in danger, and over time, many people assumed they had been killed, even though there wasn't bodily proof. And that left the door wide open for what-ifs. What if the family is actually free and just keeping a low profile under a new name? Like witness protection. What if some of them died and others survived? Like Tatiana or Olga or Maria, even little Alexei. What if they were in hiding? Was it not plausible that at least one young royal escaped? Starting in 1918, a lack of concrete information and a wealth of rumors created fertile soil for imposters to take root. At first, it's just a couple of them, hawking their dramatic tales of survival, but then dozens emerge. And by the time Francisca finds her footing, there are hundreds. Women claim to be one of the Romanov sisters, while plenty of young men claim they are Alexei. There's even one bold guy claiming to be Emperor Nicholas himself. And they all seem to want two things. Sympathy and... No surprise, money. Each fake prince or princess claims that the entire family died except him or her, the chosen one. There are rumors that the Romanovs had lots of money stashed in banks all over Europe, reason enough for someone to try on their identity for a month or two. The most memorable imposters, of course, always claim they are Anastasia, and we're not sure why. It could be that because she was rambunctious and mischievous, the prankster, the one with the most drive, Maybe she was the one that made the most sense. She was, in a way, the least royalish. No matter the why, their timing could not have been better. The world is desperate for something positive. It's reeling from the bloody destruction of World War I. There's a revolution around every corner, and new nations are being carved from old ones. It's a world that doesn't believe in fairy tales anymore. Unless, maybe, a princess could rise from the grave. Back to the asylum in Berlin. 
Francesca has had a lot of time to think and realizes something. If she pretends to be a princess but is later discovered as a fraud, who's going to care? She is, after all, in a mental hospital. Everyone would assume she was, well, lying to herself. So it's worth a try. Francesca shows her nurse the magazine cover and asks if she sees any resemblance between herself and the princess. The nurse has to admit that, yeah, there are some similarities. Sure, the patient is a bit rough around the edges, but who wouldn't be after being left for dead, assaulted, then lost for two years? The eye color is the same. The scars on her face well, easily explained as a result of those bayonets in the cellar. This was way before the internet. Nobody knows these scars came from shrapnel in a grenade factory. In no time, others at the asylum also take note. Then, so do the doctors. Stories of this strange patient, Miss Unknown's true identity, begin winding their way through Berlin until Russian emigres get wind of it. They decide to come see this alleged Anastasia for themselves. At the asylum, they find a timid and anxious woman who hides behind her bedsheet when she's overwhelmed, which is most of the time. Can it be? Can this woman be Anastasia? They talk among themselves. To be honest, she looks nothing like their lost princess. Then again, she is about the same age and has Anastasia's distinct gray-blue eyes. What are the chances? And then there's that big toe. This woman has the same distinction as the Romanov girl was known to have. It's a bunion, which is fairly common. Basically, her big toe curves severely toward her smallest one. But still, it does all hang together. The what-if is too compelling, but the visitors have to be sure. They pry into her past. Surely, if she's not the true Duchess, they will expose her immediately. But the interviewers are emotionally invested. Their conversation veers from a neutral fact-finding mission to a casual conversation. They try to jog her memory, but she simply files the stories about the Imperial family for later. She says all the right things, including insider facts. She's gleaned from newspapers and magazines, even previous visitors. Sometimes what she says aren't even facts, so much as a nod at the right place and time, an air of familiarity that the person speaking takes as a sign. Francisca must know something firsthand. For her? Why not? Her family had once been nobility. Why shouldn't she get some kind of payback for all she's been through? Why shouldn't this be her moment? She very well might have been a great princess had she been born at the right time to the right people. And her best trick of all? Silence. If all else fails and she can't remember something, it works every time. So she has plenty of people who think she has to be part of the aristocracy, including several great aunts and uncles and cousins. But there are just as many, including her childhood music teacher, who says she looks nothing like Anastasia. It's a problem that Francisca sees as a challenge. Yeah, sometimes she considers coming clean. But then, after a good night's sleep, she remembers the poverty of her childhood, the attack, the grenade, all the things she doesn't want to remember, the things she must escape. It's better this way, she decides. It's better to be Anastasia. For every problem in her story that arises, Francisca has an answer. One of the biggest bumps? She can't speak a word of Russian. Yeah, kind of an issue. Oh, you mean the language of her family's killers? 
How could you expect her to speak? It's obviously too traumatizing for her to think about it. Never mind use it. Okay, but what about this? Some of her physical features are similar to Anastasia's, but anyone who's really paying attention can see that, in reality, they don't really look all that much alike. Francisca's lips are thicker, her nose is longer, her profile is altogether different. She also doesn't know how Russian Orthodox church services work. And more importantly, people want to know what happened in that cellar all those years ago. How did she survive? But Francisca is good. She can explain anything and everything away, even though her stories are wildly inconsistent. For example, sometimes she says she hid behind her sister, Olga. Other times, she says she hid behind Tatiana. Sometimes she claims to have fainted and doesn't remember a single thing. One time, she even says she was beaten into unconsciousness. Another time, shot in the neck. Francisca's act would have been laughable, except that at this particular moment in history, people needed to believe this fairy tale. It's not all that different from the recent Anna Delvey story, where a young woman completely fabricates a noble pedigree. Francisca also takes on this strange, hybrid, German-Russian accent at times, and throws in the occasional grammatically incorrect German phrase. People need to believe, and so they do. They start giving her gifts and money and free places to live. Unbelievably, the great uncle of the real Anastasia, a prince of Denmark, pays for her to convalesce in Switzerland while her story is investigated. All because he, like so many others, wants dearly for her to be who she claims to be. One of her best tricks is her way of reflecting what people want to see in her. Like a mirror, every inconsistency can be explained by trauma. Francisca eventually leaves the asylum and changes her name several times over the next few years. But eventually, she settles on Anna Anderson. Then, in 1927, seven years after the jump into that icy river and at the age of 31, Francisca becomes known for who she really is. A Berlin newspaper had uncovered her true identity and publishes a dramatic expose, declaring once and for all that this woman from the asylum is not Anastasia, but merely the daughter of a Polish farmer. This should be the end of Francisca's con woman career, but it's not. As far as she's concerned, she is the Russian princess Anastasia. And it doesn't matter what some newspaper says. She digs in, settling deeper into the stolen identity. But something still changes. For Anna Anderson, the line between fact and fiction begins to blur. And soon, not even she will be able to tell the difference. In May of 1927, Francisca sees her last free ride in Europe. She's had a lot of free rides. Invitations to live with Russian exiles, generous people who want to help her, new dresses, elaborate meals, They pay for any medical care she might need, all because they still believe. They believe her, even when she's a nightmare guest. She's rude and insolent. She cries or explodes in anger when people politely question her about her past, or really, just whenever she feels like it. In some ways, it underscores her believability. Then there's an invitation. A distant cousin of Anastasia's, Duke George of Luchtenberg invites Francisca to live at his castle in Bavaria. But there's a twist. Luchtenberg has found Francisca's brother, her real brother, Felix. He's waiting for her at a local inn. Initially, Felix declares that she is his sister, Francisca. 
but then he backpedals, saying that though she strongly resembles his sister, he really can't be sure. Years later, Felix's family says that he knew Francisca was his sister, but in this moment, he chooses to leave her to her new life. It's a gift of sorts, because he knows that whatever she's up to is going to give her a far more comfortable life than any alternative. Her own brother giving her a chance to continue being Anastasia. It all comes together. All the lies, the growing mental illness, the obsession for so many years. Francisca can't think of herself as anybody but the Duchess. By 1928, Francisca is 32 years old, and people in the United States are becoming familiar with her story. A Russian man named Gleb Botkin starts publishing articles in support of her cause. His connection? Botkin is the son of Dr. Botkin, the personal physician to the Romanov family at the time of their execution. The doctor was assassinated along with the Tsar and Tsarina's family. Now, this younger Botkin is an interesting guy. In a few short years, he will start a pagan worship cult, and thousands of people will follow his teachings. So, in many ways, he and Francisca are a lot alike. But in his younger days, he just really needs to believe that Francisca was the ward of his assassinated father. It brings him comfort and also attention that allows him to sell his religion. Botkin's publicity catches the attention of a distant cousin of Anastasia, Azenia Leeds, a former Russian princess who had married a wealthy American industrialist. Botkin and Leeds arranged for the newly minted Anna Anderson to travel to the United States at Leeds' expense. She'll stop in Paris on the way to the States, and it's here that she meets a former Grand Duke, the dead Tsar's cousin. Amazingly, like so many others, he believes that she is Anastasia. He is so convinced that he arranges for her to live with the Leeds family in Oyster Bay, New York. Now, it wasn't unusual for wealthy American families to host royals in their homes. Rich Americans loved to marry or adopt European royals who had lost their money, if not their titles. Meanwhile, Botkin retains a lawyer to oversee legal moves to obtain any of the Tsar's estate outside of what is now the Soviet Union. Because the death of the Tsar has never been proven, the estate can only be released to relatives 10 years after the presumed date of death. It's now that time. So the lawyer sets up a company to raise funds by selling shares of any estate that might be found. Once again, Francisca, or Anna Anderson now, sees an opportunity. She claims that the Tsar, her purportedly dead father, had deposited money abroad during his lifetime. Now, this was not unusual. A lot of royal families kept accounts in other nations, particularly those that were intermarried so closely with each other. And perhaps no royals were more intermarried at this time than the children and grandchildren of Queen Victoria of England. It turns out that the Romanovs did not have any fortune stashed in other countries. But this doesn't matter. The rumors of a large royal Russian fortune in England have persisted ever since rumors of the family's death began. It's inevitable, then, that the royal cousins Anna lives with feel that this man, Bodkin, is interfering in a family matter and that Anna is too close to this troublemaker. She's asked to leave the Leeds estate. Fine. She moves out and turns to a famous musician who puts her up in a swanky hotel in New York City. But then, in 1928, the Tsar's mother dies in Russia. The 12 nearest relations of the Tsar meet at her funeral and sign a declaration that denounces Anderson as an imposter. 
Botkin, of course, explodes, calling the family greedy and unscrupulous. He says that they denounced Anna so they could inherit the Romanov fortune. When the musician can no longer afford to keep her at the hotel, Anna simply shrugs and bounces from home to home throughout New York City society. For 18 months, Anna is the toast of New York's upper class. Then she starts to become a liability as a house guest. She throws tantrums and breaks dishes and glasses. She kills her pet parakeet. On one occasion, she runs around naked on the roof. So it's not very surprising when her new friends have her committed to an asylum in Westchester, where she stays for a year. In 1931, Francisca, now 35, is allowed to return to Germany where she's supposed to stay at another hospital. Only, when she arrives, the doctors decide that she is actually sane. They don't really believe this, but money is tight for a ward of the state, and the hospital does not want to pay for her care. Princess or not, she's broke, and she's not German by birth. Unfortunately for Anna, she has nowhere to go. Nowhere but the government in Germany. It's arranged for her to be reunited with the Shanskowska family. It seems that Anna's sister, Gertrude, the one she'd had a falling out with all those years ago, really wants to see her again, and so they meet. But there's a problem. If the family signs an affidavit that Anna is really a family member, she will be arrested. She can't do this to her sister, no matter how long it's been since Anna acknowledged her birth family. In the end, Gertrude says she made a mistake and that she is not Anna's sister after all. It's the second time her family lets her go, and so the game continues. From now to the end of World War II, both Russian and German royalty go on to house Anna at various locations. Friends and family of the late Tsar and Tsarina come to visit her every so often. And still, for every one of them who says she's a fraud, there's one who says she's absolutely Anastasia Romanov. All the while, litigation over the Romanov fortune rages on. And still, there's no definitive conclusion about Anna's pedigree. And here's where Anna Anderson starts to break down even more. She becomes a recluse and surrounds herself with cats, 60 of them. The humble cottage she was given by a German prince begins to decay. And in May of 1968, 72-year-old Anderson is found semi-conscious and rushed to a hospital at Nuremberg. In her absence, the German prince cleans up the property. He discovers that she's hung barbed wire all around it. There's rotting food scattered everywhere, and it's piled with trash and things she's hoarded. The yard stinks of remains of partially buried pets. It's so bad, the Board of Health has threatened to condemn it. The prince feels he has no choice but to put her Irish wolfhound and 60 cats to death. Horrified, Anderson accepts her long-term supporter, Gleb Botkin's offer to move back to the United States. Sometime after her return, Anna meets a wealthy man named Jack Manahan. At the age of 72, she marries him, and they move to Charlottesville, Virginia. Manahan is wealthy. He's also eccentric, just like Anna. In just a few years, their home morphs into her old cottage back in Germany, and it becomes the brunt of local jokes. There's even a local winery that uses her notoriety as an imposter to market their wine. And still, Anna Anderson never gives up the act of being Anastasia. On the contrary, she changes her name again, this time to Anastasia Anderson. 
Those who speak with her in the final years and months of her life are convinced that she truly believes her own lies. But of course, the couple doesn't speak to that many people. Together, the pair are routinely committed to hospitals and asylums for their inability to care for themselves. In November of 1983, Manahan breaks his 87-year-old wife out of a hospital, and they drive around the state for three days, stopping only for gas and food at convenience stores. Then, on February 12, 1984, the woman who convinced the world she was a princess of the Russian Empire dies of pneumonia. Far from a royal funeral, she is cremated, her ashes taken to the Bavarian Abbey where she once lived. All the lawsuits against the claimants of the Romanov fortune are dropped. They've been going on since 1970 at this point, making it the longest-running lawsuit in German history. And yet, there is still no decision made on whether Francisca was the real Anastasia or not. Which brings us to 1991, when Russian authorities exhume human remains from the Romanov burial site. Crown Prince Alexei and one Romanov daughter are not accounted for, which only adds fuel to the persistent legend that Anastasia survived execution. Is it possible that Anastasia escaped and resurfaced as Anna Anderson? The world gets excited once again, well, for a little while, because in 2007, two more skeletons are discovered. DNA tests are run and bones remeasured, and the bodies are identified. Every Romanov is accounted for. Anastasia Nikolaevna Romanov has been dead since 1918. And what really happened to her is far more terrifying than the story told by her most famous imposter, Anna Anderson. Back on that summer night in the house in the forest, Anastasia was taken down to the cellar with her family. It's the same starting point almost all the imposters use. The family was lined up against the wall and shot by revolutionaries. The adults died immediately, according to accounts from the guards. But the children did not. The jewels stitched into their clothes, protecting them. That was real. And the executioners had to use their bayonets to finish the job. It was horrendous, brutal. But what happened next if Anastasia didn't wake up in a cart? The executioners threw the bodies down a mine shaft and then poured sulfuric acid on top of them to destroy the evidence. They also separated two of the bodies and buried them elsewhere, so if anyone ever came upon the gravesite looking for answers, they'd be thrown off. So Anastasia didn't wake up in a cart, because there never was one. There will always be people who take on the life of someone else, like Anna Delve, or Sarah Wilson, or Anna Anderson. It's a way to escape reality. So the bigger question is, How could so many people suspend disbelief for so many decades and refuse to see what was right in front of their eyes? Simple. The fake princess helped people believe what they wanted to believe. That kings and queens in beautiful gowns and jewels were not just remnants of a bygone era. That there was a possibility of victory amid tragedy. That hope was still warranted. And perhaps Francesca was able to convince so many people that she was Anastasia Romanov because she was able to convince herself. In her new distorted reality, she was safe. She could talk about surviving Anastasia's horrible situation because she hadn't gone through it. And yet, she reaped the benefit of people's sympathy around the world. It's not likely that she had even close to the same amount of support 
and understanding when it came to the very real hardships Francisco longed to escape. Poverty, accidents, assault. As Francisca, she was one of many, facing difficulties common to many. But as Anastasia, she became a party of one. And for a long time, it seemed like everyone came around to support her. It was enough, and yet, it also never was. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Julia Bricklin. It's produced by DJ Lubell, edited and sound designed by Anton Doty and Alex Gonzalez, and mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks.